baby, we're back. It's the Pod People, the world's premier horror podcast. And I can say that with confidence because it's 2020. And that means that we can say anything that we want. I'm Matisse Van Rossum. <laughs> I'm not going to elaborate. I'm Ben Sheets, a.k.a. Rain Moose, a.k.a. Rico Nasty, a.k.a. Misfit on a Moped, a.k.a. Constable Chromosomes. <laughs> <laughs> Prepared for that one. Wow, yeah. Excellent. My name is uh, Cleveland Mosier, and there's a snake in my boot. <laughs> well, it's been such a long time. Not for the listeners, you just heard us last week, but for us, we, we haven't recorded in almost a month. It's uh, been years. It's been years. We're just back from our holidays. We're ready to burst out of 2020's chest like some kind of alien monstrosity. Get me out of here. The first recording of the decade. The first official recording of the decade, and let me tell you folks, things are already scary as fuck out here. Aren't they just... We're about to go to war with Iran. That's happening. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. That's really... (laughs) Anyway, instead of dwelling on the horrors of the future, I want to take you guys back to a little year that some might remember called 2019. Oh, how we miss thee. So long ago. Feels like a decade ago. It really does. This week, we are studying 2019's Last Laugh. We are catching up on the final films of the year that we didn't have a chance to talk about, and this episode is curated by our own Ben Sheets. And I will say, overall, solid picks, my dude. Yes. Ditto that. I'm very happy with this, uh, this year's picks. I did quite a bit of research, actually, looking into this stuff, and I have to say the two movies that I was considering picking that didn't come out in time are slated for this year. So we'll definitely be talking about those other two, but the three I did pick, The Fanatic, Them That Follow, and Daniel Isn't Real, all are very unique movies uh, that I think I have a good amount to talk about. I don't know about you guys, but... Yeah, I, I was really pleased that I did not hate any of these movies. Usually the mid-year catch-up is significantly worse than the end-of-the-year catch-up, and I mean, that was definitely the case uh, in 2019 as well, getting stuck with duds like uh, Greta and The Perfection. And I don't even remember the other movie we watched. God, why would you remind me? Um, so we're going to start with uh, The Fanatic, which is the only film I went into uh, knowing a little bit about it. Uh, the Fanatic. <laughs> the Fanatic is a uh, 2019 film starring John Travolta, Devin Sawa, and Anna Golja, but... The t- icing on the cake is that this is f- <laughs> this film is written and directed by Limp Biscuit frontman Fred Durst uh, and auteur Excuse Fred me. Durst. Yes. <laughs> auteur Fred Durst. Uh, the IMDb uh, summary for this is a rabid film fan stalks his favorite action hero and destroys the star's life. 
I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that is not even close to accurate as what this movie is about. If I had to rewrite this, I would say something more along the lines of uh, mentally ill man abused by Hollywood. (laughs) Yes, yes. Stan's revenge, in a way. Uh, It's funny because uh, I was looking at uh, some of the, the IMDb stuff for this, and I didn't realize at the time when I watched it, but Devin Sawa, famous from, you know, Final Destination and stuff, he was also Stan, Stan in the Stan. Stan music video, which he is was. the funniest turn considering how sadistic he seems in this movie at I'm, times. I'm pretty sure that one of the characters at one point even uses the term Stan. Oh, absolutely. And to describe, uh, uh, John Travolta's love for Devin Sawa, I got a good little laugh out of that because I was like, it's Stan. (laughs) Yeah. I think we should just start off by talking about John Travolta's whole shtick in this movie. Well, it's important to mention, too, that John Travolta is the first credited producer on this movie. Yes. So this isn't the case of a declining actor taking on any role that's thrown at him just in the hopes of staying relevant. Uh, This is not a Nick Cage thing. This is something that John Travolta believed in. Well, and that's something I want to sidebar for a little bit later, um, in that, like, I think this is kind of a, a pure distillation of how uh, Fred Durst and John Travolta view uh, fans yes. and their fans and fan culture in general. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting in that in that respect. But before we get into that, I do really want to specifically talk about John Travolta's batshit, you know, Nicolas Cage-esque performance. I would in this. say, yeah, I would say you know, it is... The dedication to the bit. It is the only reason for watching this movie is John Travolta's performance. I Pretty much. I, th- I think I think some of the, the ideology is super interesting in that respect sure um and it is one of those movies that i think fits into the so bad it's good camp yeah in in the the memeable sense i think it does the Mm. sincerity is there yeah yes Yes. i think i think it, it definitely checks every box does it check every box well uh, or at least does it, like, really fucking scribble in into those boxes like a Troll 2 or The Room? That's where I think it kind of falls a little bit. Let's readdress can... that when we do our ratings, because I have yes. some thoughts on that as well. But yes, John Travolta in this film uh, plays the titular fanatic, uh, who is a uh, 50-something... Autistic. Autistic, like like low functioning autistic super fan living in Hollywood trying to make his living uh at doing uh impressions on the walk of fame with maybe the wildest haircut <laughs> yeah I, I will well I will say that it's very funny especially considering who it is performing this character it is borderline, if not over the line. I think it's offensive. Offensive. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I don't. Yeah, I, I don't think there's that there's any need like skirting around whether it's offensive or yeah, not. Okay, it's fair it's enough. offensive. Yeah, no, it's, and it's like, bad. does it offend me? No, but it's offensive. The biggest marker for it, which is also I think the funniest thing about it, is that you can never pin down like what degree of mentally ill he is because it. I, you definitely get the vibe that like Fred Durst probably doesn't have that deep of a knowledge 
range. To me, it subject. just seemed like he was playing like Chris Chan or something. Well, there are times when like he's he's relatively like cognizant. He's relatively like able to like maintain a conversation. And then there are other times where like he's stuck like rocking back and forth, completely like incapable of even like simple actions. It's yeah, it's he's like, all over the place. It's like the it's like the most surface level like high school jock bros uh, interpretation yeah. of what uh, mentally handicapped is. Like it's. It's obvious that nobody involved with the production of this film did any research. We use the broad term autistic to describe what John Travolta is, but it's it's really, like, not. It's a dash of everything. Like, it's autism mixed with, like, Tourette's, mixed with, like, schizophrenia. Yeah. Like, it's... Like, ADHD. ADHD. In there. Like, the way, you, like, you know, he has to keep moving and stuff. Two of my favorite things with it is, one, even though it is very offensive, John Travolta is 100% in for the bit. He's fully you know, committed. He's believes. 100%. Yeah. He absolutely it's, believes. It's a, a sincerity. And two, I think he probably pulled from all the very autistic people that he saw and just took their tics yeah. that he saw around them without, you know, actually spending any time No, he spent all time on YouTube and, like, sprinkled a little bit from here and a little <laughs> bit in this scene. I'm going to do something like this and in this scene I'm going to do something like this. Like, he, quote, researched, but... It's rough. Like uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly, yeah. though, Ben. What makes it entertaining to watch despite this is the fact that John Travolta is so heavily committed to it. I think, uh, Cleveland, when you and I were watching it in Alabama, I mentioned something that, like, John Travolta was trying to be, like, John Malkovich in uh, Of Mice and Men. <laughs> I, like, he, I, think he, I think he felt <laughs> that this right. was, that that was, like, this is the role that he was committing to. Like, you know, he's, he's really method acting. This was going to be the role that was going to, like, reignite his career, I think, is, like, how he, he approached it. Meanwhile, less than five years ago, He's great in the People versus OJ. Like, yeah. legitimately very well acted. Well, I mean, John Travolta was kind of the hammiest of that cast. He was, but I mean, he was playing, he was playing Robert Shapiro. Like, yeah. And and the makeup in that show yeah. was pretty bad. But that's besides the point. Anyway. Uh, in this movie, he really gives it everything, even though for most actors, this would be a humiliating role. Yes. You know, uh, especially with some of the things he does. Let's start with the opening. Sure. Like the, the 20 uh, production companies. <laughs> yeah, there were titles that. There was uh, there was an absurd amount of production companies on this there movie. Was. For such a Z-grade straight to it's fucking red box Called movie. Fred Durst had several cousins who really wanted to be a production company on this. <laughs> but yeah, the, the opening sequence, I can't remember what the footage is, but we get like a, and once again, big old quotes, like noir, like detective style, like opening narration. About oh, yeah. Moose. Oh, that was really weird. This yeah. perspective, and from it's like Leah, the paparazzi Leah. chick who just enables him, knowing full well that right. he's. We'll who, get into that. Who we don't see until much later on in the until film. Until like a good twenty minutes later. Yeah. yeah, and and then she's just introduced. It's not like presented as any like, oh, this was the the narrator. It, it's so weird. It, it's such an such an awkward framing. The, the weirdest part of that whole character is she's like an assistant for him, even though you know she's supposed to be his friend. It's almost like what I envision Fred Durst and Sean Travolta to think friends are. 
They're yeah. just complete uh, well, like PAs. <laughs> yeah, okay, let's let's get into her a little bit because she is actually. She, yeah. she is fully culpable if not downright responsible yes. for every bad thing that happens in this movie. There's nothing redeemable she about is, her actions. She is a she's a paparazzo who who knows and is quote unquote friends with Moose. Yeah, his name is Moose. I don't know if anybody has mentioned that yet. But he's in the house. Rain Moose, Moose is in the house. She completely enables horrible behavior that he has no ability to like process as like something things that people should not do clearly in front of her like right. he he, like he regularly he, demonstrates how un- incapable is my favorite thing was that you said uh during i think the second scene with him and her interacting i can't remember what the fuck was actually occurring but uh i remember just you saying at one point like because they were like standing fairly close to each other like chatting or whatever and you and you just said like man could you fucking imagine how like the smell of him <laughs> Like, there's no way, like, she could, like, be that close to him. Like, anyone in the movie could be that close to him and not just, like, regularly gag. There's there's no way his hygiene is anywhere near, like, reasonable. The, the thing about it, too, is she has such a subservient role to him in the movie. It's so weird. Like, every scene she's in, she's helping him she has no like self-interest for the most part in the movie like we see like one little bit of her like taking pictures yeah only to be interrupted by moose essentially and And she and she like gives him access to like the app that paparazzi use to like find celebrity houses or whatever and she's like i'm gonna give you this but don't use it right what the fuck was that about? And then when he uses it to find oh, like. Devon Sawa's house and creepily hang out outside, and then he tells her about it, she's like, I can't believe you did this. I told you not to use it. Bitch, why did you give it to him? Why? So He we- has the brain of a child. So we have, like, no one to really care about in this film. Yeah, that is another big thing. I had no idea who I was supposed to be rooting for in this movie. Because, like, the posters and the trailers and all this stuff make John Travolta out to be, like, the psycho killer. But he's legitimately just, like, a severely disabled man who is being taken advantage of left and right. And, like, it's not a subversion. And and Devin Sawa is... We see it from the beginning. Almost sadistic. Devin Sawa is sadistic. He is not sympathetic. He is just a, at all. an extremely cruel person yeah, in general. He, he, no, he totally is. Like He has multiple interactions with Moose coming to him and being like, hey, can you sign things for me? Like, I love your work. And Devin Sawa just being like, hey, why don't you get the fuck out of here, you piece of shit? Or I'm gonna beat the fucking <laughs> shit out of you. This, like, mentally challenged man is just, like, trying to get you to sign something for him. Like, he doesn't know any better. He doesn't know that he's, like, trespassing on your property. Like, treat him with a little bit more understanding, you know? <laughs> it almost goes to a comical degree at it a does. point. I remember there there was a point where he's driving and he runs into Moose uh, in the streets. Yeah. You know? Like, pedals to the metal. Almost while runs him over. Almost purple with blood pressure <laughs> and blasting Limp Biscuit. <laughs> yeah, about that. Yeah, quick aside for that. He gets into the car with his son. Oh, that scene. And turns on the radio, and he's like, he's like, hey, 
you like a little limp biscuit and then cranks it up and then we've got a scene of him driving around for like a minute and a half to limp biscuit and it's the most masturbatory bullshit i've ever seen <laughs> yeah like it's, like, it's get hilarious. over yourself fred durst that being said Devin Sawa's age does about correspond with being into Limp Bizkit well, when he was like a teenager. On the so on the flip that's, side, it's believable. It it kind of plays into the ideology thing. Yeah. Because do you think Fred Durst sees himself as Devin Sawa when writing this? Yeah, I think he does. Yeah, I, I think I definitely think there's a self insertion there. Devin Sawa is portrayed as like a kind of uh, tortured badass. <laughs> you know, like the world is against him, like his bitch wife uh, is divorcing him. Yeah, and, and he's cheating on her he, with, with his, his maid. Yeah. Like, yeah, but he feels bad about it because I guess she's below him. Right, exactly. Like, like, it's, it's that kind of weird ideology too where like housekeepers are below him. Because they're the help. Uh, a great expansion on that is when Moose accidentally kills the maid, she's out there lying in the yard for like three days before anybody no notices her. Yeah, she just literally, gets completely forgotten about by the plot. in the yard. The movie yeah. forgets about her. Like, like Fred Durst has like a whole day to be at his home, just, just walking around. Like, And he has big backyard windows in his house, which yeah. are established. Like where he could just clearly see her. Which is, again, you know, like a trope of a bad movie but as like a facet of fred durst's ideology it's per- and it's mindset the metaphor it's yeah. it's the perfect her metaphor and so mm-hmm. so interesting to me because it's like he fred durst must be kind of sadistic too he might be he's probably a huge oh, asshole you know to his fans Allegedly. he probably <laughs> sees devin sawa as a he yeah, probably wrote it, yeah. Was. Like you said, you know, he probably projected himself onto Devon Tawa in I a lot so of too. ways. I, I, well, I don't think there's like a like a like a sense that like the maid was seen as like invisible to like not regard like her death in any way was like really fucking I, dumb. I get the feeling too that Fred Durst like projected aspects of himself onto like a lot of the characters, like the street magician guy, was oh, very the, all of the so night, like so stuck in the early two thousands. Yeah. Weird. Like what well, was the scene when it, like he walks into the bathroom and like that character says, uh, "Oh like, yeah, the like hey gay lord or whatever." It's like what is this like like two thousand and two? Like I haven't heard anyone say use, that use that insult. Yeah, like, they use some weird slang in this movie. Yeah. Gay lord and uh, the paparazzo chick it, call celebrity celebutards. You said it on the car multiple times. Right back. What, what was it, Tease? Like that, like Fred Durst is just like stuck in like the. Oh yeah, well I think I think Fred Durst is one hundred percent stuck in the height of his fame and popularity. So like you know two thousand two, two thousand three. I, I think that the structure of this movie is very two thousand, early two thousands to me, and just like the way these people talk. Uh, like you said, they're using they're using insults like Gaylord that are like adults are saying these things. And it's like that is like the most sixth grader thing to say 20 years ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's almost like it's a time capsule. Cleveland, you and I were watching it with several other people. Mm-hmm. And at one point, like well, well into 
the movie, like 30, 45 minutes. I can't remember who it was says like, wait, is this supposed to be in present day? I thought this was in like 2006. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they thought it was a period piece. <laughs> right. And, well, it definitely does seem like one like and a lot of times. Because he's stuck in that period. But no, because, you, you because see Fred like Durst all has sorts never, of... has never like advanced past that. While we're still kind of brushing on the relationship between uh, what's his face and the maid? The, oh, Devin Sawa. Yeah, with and Devin the maid. Sawa and the maid. There's a sequence where we ha- we see like a conversation uh, slash argument with them where Devin Sawa's character is preparing a, a smoothie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> Thank you. No, ben, yeah, I, I don't know if yeah, you caught that yeah, continuity yeah. error, but holy shit, uh, Tis, you're, you're the one who you're the one who spotted it. We almost missed it. He's having a conversation with the maid in the kitchen. While he's making himself a smoothie, and he throws like a handful of kale or something green into the blender, then takes like a spoonful of like mustard or something, throws it in there, and then turns the blender on with no liquid in it whatsoever. And then it cuts to the next shot, and behind him, the blender is clearly empty. empty. <laughs> totally empty. Like so many things wrong with that. Like like Christ Almighty. Like, like blends no liquid, just protein powder and vegetables. Like, and then in the next shot, it's just empty. And it's like, clearly, it just goes to show that, like, Fred Durst or, like, probably, like, no one involved on in the production, like, makes their own meals anymore or something ridiculous. Like, there's just, like, such, like, an insane disconnect like, to, like, oh, yeah, you're to gonna, blend. Uh, you're going to make a smoothie. Yeah, without some, uh, some, any liquid. Some green shit in there and some protein powder, you know? Like, yeah, like, uh, Hunter Dunbar's in good shape. So, you know, he's going to be drinking those healthy green smoothies you know fucking you know real faggot shit (laughs) real gaylord shit real gaylord shit um kind of off topic but one thing i want to point out before i forget about it is the film starts with a a quote uh something to the extent like you're a fan without you i'm nobody or something like that and it's attributed (laughs) to To Hunter Dunbar, who is Devin Sawa's character in this movie. And he says it later in the movie. he says it later in the movie. (laughs) It it reminds me of that tweet from Little B where he (laughs) tweets an inspirational message and then ends it with, quote, Little B. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Iconic. Well, we should. We've got two other movies to cover, so we should probably get into some of the meat of of this fucking movie, which I would like to talk about the climax when Moose has a a, a crisis of faith after uh, after Hunter Dunbar has been mean to him and burns all of his par- his Hunter Dunbar paraphernalia. And then goes to break into his house for some reason. We should mention it really quickly. Uh, we talked about the the scene leading up to that with the car, but Hunter Dunbar like threatens that he's gonna like shove a shotgun up Moose's ass or yes. something like that. And yes, like, that's right. Just- way over the top and way over the line to say to anyone especially an autistic dude in front of your child and like the stab sound when like he writes on his shirt like oh yeah when he gives moose an autograph across his shirt and and they film it like he's stabbing him that was an interesting choice 
it's, it's established earlier in the movie that like Devon Sawa takes a bunch of sleeping pills every night and then gets drunk. So he's like a really heavy sleeper. Like there's a whole montage scene of like Moose breaking into his house and like taking pictures with him while he's sleeping and like watching kissing him on the head, kissing him on the forehead <laughs> and like uh, watching sitting in his living room and watching uh, movies next to unconscious Devon Sawa. So when he eventually goes back later, Devon Sawa wakes up in the middle of the night and he is like exaggeratedly tied to the bed there's just like so much rope and it's like okay we know that he he's a real heavy sleeper so i'll buy that but then there's a super long scene of moose uh like trying to scare him by wearing different 80s slasher killer costumes also Side note on that, when he dresses up like Jason and pretends like he's going to stab Devin Sawa, but then uh, it's a fake knife. And after that, he's like, he's like, oh, you you scream so good. You you're just like Jamie Lee Curtis. I just want to note Jamie Lee Curtis is not in Friday the 13th. That's Halloween, and John Travolta's character should know that because he's an autistic movie buff. Get that out there. I, Fred Durst probably doesn't know the difference, but I caught it. God damn it! I'd be equally like willing to believe that they wrote that like because oh he's he's you know his character's mentally deficient like he needs to he gets the name wrong or whatever for the person who's in I Halloween. doubt it. Like I mean either way it's bad like it's bad characterization yeah. because again like that's the one thing his character is as a movie buff like and he doesn't even get that in that sequence it's, it's but anyway eventually devon sawa like sweet talks him and we have this long sequence that then that they put a weird like imagination filter over where they make everything like soft and pink like while devon Sawa's talking and he's talking about how like i'm sorry man i just didn't understand you you know just just untie me and we'll we'll go we'll go wherever you want to eat and I'll and we'll get we'll get milkshakes and watch movies together and we'll be best friends and it'll be really good and this goes on for like five yeah, minutes. The filter just fucking stays yeah. on the screen the whole goddamn time. And trying to convince trying to convince <laughs> Moose to untie was that? him. And when Moose does untie him. Uh, Devin Sawa, still lying in the bed, reaches up out of frame and pulls down a shotgun from nowhere. <laughs> and You know, the one just hanging above your bed like right. you do. Yeah, 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 you know, like you do. Fred Durst ideology. <laughs> and then uh, shoots off Moose's hand and proceeds to sadistically torture him for like five minutes and this is where this is where the movie really lost me yeah like it was just like, like hate crime like it was, weird it bullshit was like, it was just like what the fuck is going on it, it was insanely cruel yeah for somebody who's supposed to be like the the protagonist of this film or whatever who is taken captive by a crazy fan like to to then not only blow his hand off but like shoot on either like right in his ear on either side to like make him deaf and then takes uh kicks him down the stairs and takes a knife and like punctures moose's eye it's like ew. yeah it was it was so gratuitous it's, and and unfortunate so in, in a respect in a way though i see it as how Fred Durst, yes, you know, aggro frat bro, bro, if someone broke into my house, if a crazy fan fucking broke into yes. my house, man, I'd fucking 
shoot their hand off and fucking deafen them and then fucking stab them in the eye, bro. You're absolutely You know, right. that's yeah. definitely what Fred mm-hmm. Durst... That's, it's interesting. Like, I almost read it as, like, because, like, uh, Hunter Dunbar's character <gasps> is just, like, fucking, like, written to be Biff from Back to the Future from the beginning. Like, I did feel like he was framed as, like, a nasty piece of shit, like, the whole time. But maybe I'm just, like, so disconnected from that. Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think he is. I think he is a nasty piece of shit, but I think that so I, is Fred Durst. Right, exactly. I think that Fred Durst considers him the hero. I, I don't think the film reads that way. I I'd, think I'd that, be curious. I though, think yeah. that the film just on on its face value, I think Hunter Dunbar is the villain and Moose is the victim. Like regardless of Moose like stalking him or whatever, or breaking into his house or what, like he doesn't. He never actually hurts him. Well, because I thought like that was supposed like, to be like the sub, that's the subversion, right? Like they treat this movie like a horror film. Like he kills. They make you think that like he's gonna like horribly like fuck up hunter dunbar but but then the subversion is that hunter dunbar is the the monster he kills like he kills the maid but it's an accident she's up in his face yelling at him to get off the property and and he has like a panic attack and pushes her and she mm-hmm. hits her head on a planter like i think the, the, the fact dunbar that we have to like <laughs> that we're having this conversation about like oh of course hunter dunbar is the villain like but yeah, like yeah. like whether but i don't it think fred is, i think it's i think it's an important right, distinction i don't the, think fred the fact thinks that, that that is ambiguous to us goes to show how fucking horribly of a job this film did it like conveying its message but as an artifact i find that interesting because because it's an aspect where the intent is obviously different than the outcome but the intent was still i think somewhat intentional i think fred durst wrote this in a very particular way yes yeah. Um, and even if it didn't read the same way to us, it's different than, you know, like a lot of your budget, bottom of the barrel uh, trash where like there is no intent. Yeah, I think there is an intent there. And I think reading that intent in terms of like how Fred Durst sees these situations is really interesting. Yeah, I think, like I said, I think that this that this movie serves as as a great peek into the mind of Fred Durst. Yeah, uh, personally, but, I'll keep that door closed. <laughs> I mean, yeah, after after a after a peek, I think that I can do without more. Thank you very much. But you know, like it is interesting to see that, like, yeah, I think that Fred Durst really does consider fans this way. I think he considers them. Uh, drooling idiots, uh, and I think that I think that he he thinks that that Devon Sawa is uh, well within his rights to defend himself in his home the way he did. But it's like it's not even like he just tried to kill Moose. It's like he was. It's so goddamn he gratuitous. Was teaching, I was like he was teaching displeased. him like a fucked up lesson, and then he like lets him go. And yeah, that was such a bizarre part. Right? Yeah, he blows off his hand and cuts out one of his eyes. And then just like picks him up off the floor and unlocks the door and is like, there you go, bye. And just like shows him out the door. It's like, haha, that'll teach this motherfucker. But then jokes on Devon Sawa because uh, the gardener shows up and finds the maid's dead body and shows up with the cops right after Moose has left and Devon Sawa is covered in blood and 
he goes to prison for it. So. Even though, like, forensics, like, 101. Oh, I mean, yeah, forens- <laughs> yeah, forensics, yeah. forensics would, would like, clear him immediately. Like, also, he's a, a rich white celebrity. Like, right, he's a rich the- white celebrity. All he has to say is that's not her blood. They have to test it. It's not her blood. And yeah. then, like, it, it goes on from there. Like, Moose is still, like, hanging around the same places at the end of the movie. Like, that's what we see him, like, in the same Hollywood yeah. walk area. He would be easily locatable. Moose is still going to go to prison. The reality of that situation is still fucked up. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> There's in no reality it is. As a smooth-brained metaphor, though, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the dichotomy of fans, man. They're drooling imbeciles, but without them... We're in a prison of mediocrity. Whoa! And I think I think what uh, what Fred Durst really considers like the very poignant uh, message at the end of the film is that when Moose is walking around his old haunts on the Hollywood Hall of Fame, like covered in blood with like his eye oozing out, like people come up and want to take pictures with him because they think he's like wearing movie makeup. So when before he wasn't able to make any money, now people are approaching him and it's like for a few days well right yeah until uh uh, until like 20 minutes later when somebody's like oh my god and like calls an ambulance and then what's he gonna do he's not gonna be able to get back out there and work missing a hand and an eye well like you said you know basic forensics will probably tell that like what the true story of what happened and you know moose ends up in prison and the legal justice system is not kind to the mentally handicapped But Tease, they had a cute cartoon with Moose as a pirate. Uh, with an eye patch and a hook the with cartoons. a paparazzi. What was that? What was that? <laughs> yeah, oh my god! Yeah, that style was. Yeah. was, was I didn't. I, I honestly didn't hate it, but it wasn't great. It didn't either. fit the movie. No, it, didn't. it was very out of place. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was always very strange. It it definitely didn't make sense. I'm willing. I'm willing to bet that the guy who did those art sequences was one of the entire production companies at the opening credits too. I'm just just wanted to say. <laughs> yeah, his logo is up there. You're probably right. Yeah, like, I wouldn't be I surprised. that. Well, do you guys want to rate this and move on? Yeah, yeah. we uh, might as well. Yeah, okay, well, I'll start. What I will say is I definitely think that this falls into so bad it's good material. I would say that it's worth a watch. I don't know how readily I would go back to this, like, even if I was trying to show my friends, like, a So Bad It's Good movie, there's such a a laundry list of other ones that I would pick before this one. Boom, yes. Uh, But... I did enjoy this movie as sort of like a look into the the twisted mind of Fred Durst, and <laughs> I gotta I gotta give John Travolta credit for really committing to this absolutely offensive, insane role. Uh, so you know, overall, I enjoyed my time with this movie. I'm gonna give it a three out of five. All right. Well, uh, yeah, it's super interesting. In a way, I feel like John Travolta's on a roll between 2018's Gotti oh, God. and uh, 2019's <laughs> The Fanatic. Um, Fuck, dude, Gotti. Unlike Gotti, I think this movie is way better made um and in a lot of ways less bad it had me cackling at sometimes you know when uh john travolta is running around with the moose horns um, moose is in the house moose is in the house with his uh with his constable outfit there there's some classic moments in here governor i ploppy quack oh god i ploppy quack (laughs) 
I don't trust oh. anyone who gives this movie like one star. I don't think it's that bad. No, it's definitely. And more fun I than think that. it's way, yeah, way more entertaining. I than don't that. trust anybody who gives us a five star either. Yeah, though. yeah, I don't <laughs> either. No, I, I, I would probably give it a three. I think you know it is a so bad it's good movie, and I think if you're gonna pick a late night watch with friends get drunk movie you could pick much worse than this there this is worse. a pretty solid choice funny that you bring up Gotti though i think i would choose Gotti for a late night drunk bad movie over this one uh <laughs> jesus christ this one's anyway, more coherent than Gotti, but coherent. that's a very low bar but that's part of what makes Gotti such a fascinating view anyway <laughs> cleveland your rating uh yeah so i really don't know what you guys are talking about I think that this movie was an absolute affront uh, to <laughs> society and that both Fred Durst and John Travolta should be canceled immediately. Executed, even. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, drag them out into the streets. Uh, draw and quarter them, I, I say, uh, for this for this offense, and I definitely give it one star. Now, JK, uh, I, I thought it was fun. I thought it was fine um, uh, for, like, a so bad it's good. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, like, I think it checks every box, but it doesn't, like, fucking scribble into every box like a Troll 2 or a Room. I would much rather just watch watch the Room again. There were some very funny times, like the Smoothie Machine, etc. Or Blunder. Smoothie Machine. <laughs> Um, I mean, that's accurate. I, yeah. It, well, it sounds like someone who doesn't know how to operate a, uh, a blender uh, would refer yeah, to it as. Has, I think me, in the script, it's smoothie machine. Let me throw some kale into the smoothie machine. Yeah. And, and raw powder and no <laughs> and nothing else. Um, uh, I'll, give it a, I'll give it a two and a half. It was fun to make fun of. It was fun to laugh at the clown. All right. That is Fred Durst. And well, uh, there you go. As an allegedly, allegedly. You know, you're not going to get a more firsthand account into how celebrities view their fans than this movie. That's yeah. how I'll, I'll capstone this one. Absolutely. All right. Well, that'll give the Fanatic an average of 2.8 out of five pods. Moving right along. <laughs> Our second film that we're going to be talking about, as Ben mentioned, is Them That Follow, which uh, is a film directed by Britt Poulton and Dan Madison Savage. Uh, it's their directorial debu debut. I think it's actually. a savage debut. Uh, starring Alice Englert. Uh, um, who's uh, the daughter of Jane Campion. Well, wait, there's oh, a, really? Uh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, also, Olivia Coleman, Walton Goggins, uh, and Thomas Mann. Uh, and and uh, Devers. Uh, what's her name? Dilly? Caitlin? Yeah. Caitlin Devers. Caitlin Devers. Yeah. She was in Booksmart. She was one of the leads That's in Booksmart. Right. She's, she has a higher billing than uh, Alice Englert, even though Alice Englert is absolutely the main character and Caitlin Devers is not. Yeah, well. But uh, also bit part by Jim Gaffigan, which is really strange. Uh, we'll get into that. The synopsis for this film is set in the deep wilds of Appalachia where believers handle death-dealing snakes to prove themselves before God. A pastor's daughter holds a secret that threatens to tear her community apart. I thought this movie was pretty good. I, I fucking it was, loved it. I, was, I thought it was pretty solid. I think what I will say right off the bat is I think it's an okay movie elevated a ton by a stacked cast. 
I think if this was without mm. that same cast, it wouldn't have been nearly as good. Well, no, opinion. I mean, but the, the film is like featured around like I think character I'll, performances. I think I'll agree so. with you. I'd say the script is the script is serviceable. Um, but, if, but that's like saying a like a Godzilla generic, movie wouldn't be. You know, I think serviceable, serviceable, I generic, but the uh, the acting is very solid. Across yes, the board. yes, it's extremely good. Um, I also would say that of the three, this one is least deserving of horror as a qualification i think that there are a couple of scenes that might be horrifying but it's much more of like a like a, a drama psychological thriller i was asking myself that about halfway through but i, I felt by the end it, it better justified that yeah like, and it's like it's horror. very atmospheric it's, yes. it's a very slow burn you know I the cinematography was beautiful the, the, the really whole well the whole first half not much really happens it's a lot of world building and getting to know the characters it's really interesting subject matter it's about like a a small like pentecostal community living in like the mountains of you know somewhere in the appalachians west virginia tennessee somewhere thereabouts uh and like pentecostals are i think really fascinating as a study because they're the ones who do like handling venomous snakes and speaking in tongues and and shit like that. And uh, I think that that kind of community is a is a really fantastic setting for a film like this. Yeah, Tease, I remember uh, you mentioning to me at some point that that's what the plot line was, and and I said this then, and I and I still and I went into the film with with this sort of singular expectation, and that's like there's a lot of cult horror movies, and not like cult following, but like horror films about cults. Mm-hmm. All I wanted going into this film was to see some homework done. I wanted to get something that maybe felt a little more genuine, that felt like they'd really done their research on, like, that lifestyle. And I felt, I felt very gratified by the end for well, that. Like, yeah, I was I very, would, very pleased. I would agree to the point where I would say that I think it's a disservice to to call the group a cult. Because yes. Because I, mm-hmm. I don't really yeah. think God, you're so right. Is. You're so right. Like, um, they're all very genuine, believable people. And it's it's hard to are, so it, If it, anything, it's some, just devout to the point of yes. being a little suffocating and claustrophobic. And making mm-hmm. some bad decisions because yeah. of it. But and yeah, the, it's yeah they're not, honestly, like, they, they really seem, like, earnestly unaware of... Of, like any negative effects they have on anyone like considering like their their devoutness they're true and believers that's, that's so hard to do like it's just so hard to not make that like a snidely whiplash character like uh, just the the super devout person who who you know like of course like commits evil instead it's 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 so it's so banal like the and insidious the way that like it affects yeah, our main i character. was kind of expecting something akin to the sacrament going into this one and it definitely is not yeah. that and i would say that to its benefit I love the sacrament. That's a movie we should talk about at some point. I agree. I I think that for what this film delivers, it does a really good job. It's it's more centered around like a couple of like young people's like crisis of faith set in a extremely like you said devout community of true believers who are completely unshakable in their own faith so like even just like the slightest little bit of doubt like really makes you an outcast and i think that the film handled that quite well oh yeah extremely believable it's it's kind of generic centered around like mara who uh you know is pregnant out of wedlock with you know, uh, Augie, who's with, fallen out of the church, right? The who church. doesn't, who doesn't believe, and you know, like them because the poor guy's to, just trying to get the fuck out. But her parents, uh, his parents are very devout. His uh, parents are very devout, yeah. and Mara's father is the pastor, yeah, uh, Walton Goggins, who 
nailed it out of the park fucking nailed it very good i mean he's kind though i will say i know what you're gonna say i know exactly what you're gonna say seeing this post righteous Righteous gemstones Gemstones really affected it in a weird way (laughs) that's that's what i'm saying like he's typecast. here's the thing like both both walton goggins and jim gaffigan had to to get over being either like reverend uncle baby billy uh or um or just well that's the thing this movie came out before Righteous Gemstones. Yeah. You know? Oh, like, yeah. So, like, good. that reference wasn't there when they were shooting, per se. But Righteous Gemstones puts a very uh, <laughs> interesting uh, hindsight Yes, yes, on yeah. It. Fortunately, like, also, like, Uncle Baby Billy's character has got, I could say that name. <laughs> Uncle Baby Billy. <laughs> like, every sentence for the rest of my life. Uncle Baby Billy's character uh, is, like, covered in, like, white makeup with his hair and, like, the big glasses well, and Uncle- stuff. And he's so cartoonified, visually. As well, yeah, Baby Billy is that, a caricature. Yeah, Walton and, Goggins like just looks like Walton Goggins in this, and so it's much more of a person, and he's and he's just so genuine and human. That, and like, like it was pretty easy to step outside of that. I think I think he gives a believable performance in this too. You know, like as a Pentecostal preacher, he's very over the top, but sort of by his nature, like it feels real. Like having known some Pentecostal people, like it's believable. Like he is he is somebody who truly believes that like he is the vessel for like God's will. I, I buy it, but it is hard to not <laughs> think about Uncle Baby Billy. <laughs> yes. Um. Let's let's just quickly cover Jim Gaffigan because I don't have a lot to say about him in this movie. Uh, because for as high a billing as he has in this movie, he does not do a whole lot. No, I, a- I really appreciated how background he was at the beginning. I was just like, wait a minute, is that Jim? J-? Yes, it is. And then, <laughs> and then he was out of the scene again. I mean, for- I don't have a problem with it, but it's, you know, when somebody like a comedian gets like high billing for like a, you know, serious movie or a horror movie or a dark movie, they're usually like a bigger part of it mm-hmm. and Jim Gaffigan was totally background in this whole movie and it's I didn't I'm not like I want more Jim Gaffigan but I'm like you just thought it was strange it was just like yeah why are you gonna because, re- like, why can't I, you go out of your way to get somebody yeah, like Jim well, his well, character like, is he, an important character and his character also at the like same time he's the kind of like he's the kind of father who like tries his utmost to stay in the background which I think is what makes like his actions towards the end like so much more powerful is like he has to kind of like step outside of himself to do that you, you just get a vibe that he's not a very social person. He doesn't want to interact with too many people. Well, let's remember. And, like, he st- and that's sort of why his son, is, he, he's letting his son get away from him. He's literally reading the Bible in every scene. We well, see let's him. remember, too, that Augie fell out from the church, yes. and that's why they were so distant yes. in the movie, right. you know? Uh, I do want to say uh, before we dig too deep into this that um, I, I wasn't worried about with the fanatic, but like with this one, like definitely if you're listening and you haven't, I would I would recommend seeing it. Like because I think not knowing what's coming next in the film like was one of the more satisfying aspects. Sure. Uh, for me, I mean, yeah, our, our usual shtick like spoilers. Yeah. If you want, if you don't want the movie to be spoiled, go see it before you listen to us talk about. Of it. course, of course. So Olivia Coleman's character Hope is uh Augie's mom. She's great. And she she does a fantastic maybe my favorite performance Nailed in the movie. She strongly suggests to our main character to get married. Yeah. Um to what's his name? Garrett. I don't Garrett. remember the actor's name, but yeah, I I always I got the impression that that Mara agrees to do that so readily so she can hide that 
she is pregnant yes. before she's married. Yes. You know, it's like she's obviously in love with Augie, but there's this other guy who, like, her father likes who has asked her to marry him, and you get the feeling that she does it just so it's like, okay, we're going to get married, and that way once I start to show, I can say, like, oh, yeah, it's obvious just, you know, Garrett's baby. Like, she's she's just being held hostage by, like, social parameters like it's so fucked I, you well, really similar, feel for her similarly to like uh thomason and the witch you get the the impression that she is also a true believer who is really just like trying to come to terms with her sins quote unquote and like whether she is capable of redemption in god's eyes Mm -hmm. and and kind of having to come to terms with that which i think is a very interesting foil for augie who is who even says early in the film is like like he calls it her father's religion like it's not his religion he wants out of it you know he doesn't want to be a part of this community anymore so for him to sort of be held there by her you know she does have true faith i think it's a it, it it's a believable hook for him i think oh yeah and it, it makes it makes her like her rise by the end like so much more gratifying because she really does have to come out of it yeah in that sense and it's 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 legitimate means that that are thrusted upon her that force her into that and she just does it through strength of character and that's like God, like that's that's a feminist movie. Like I can like extremely get down with, you know. Like she's just a strong like person. She's not doesn't just become strong because like it's it's a fun concept. Like it it really does feel like organic. Yeah, I can't say enough good things about this movie. Olivia Colman's character, uh, in preparation for before the the uh, wedding is official, yeah, she they- uh, does a virginity check. Yep. Um, which is not a uncommon. Very uh, uncomfortable scene. Yeah, and she can tell that that Mara is pregnant, but she assumes that it's Garrett's, and they just got a little ahead of themselves and consummated before the wedding. The ultimate conflict of the film uh, is, you know, Mara kind of pushing Augie away, and then, uh, you know, him realizing that she needs him more than he needs to be out of there, so he tries to come back into the church and at least fake it for her sake, and gets snake bit, because that's the way that Pentecostals deal with uh, tests of God, is to handle rattlesnakes and pit vipers and shit like that. Right, and also, wild. we get the opening near near the beginning of the film, too, where we don't see it happen, but apparently there was, like, a, a kid who was snake Somebody bit. else who, yeah. Yeah, um, well, and the it, cops come and deal with that. There, but. There's multiple instances of them talking about stuff like that. Like, for example, Dilly's mom disappears yeah but it's pretty apparent that she i in my view that she was killed oh she died from snake bite oh oh interesting i actually i actually read it the other way that she got fed up with the religion and ran away yeah that she got out like her and so Um, she's sort of following that yes because there's the scene where walton goggins comes to her trailer and says (sighs) like hey you're gonna come stay with us but that you means you got to leave your mother behind. Oh, because, I, l- I love yeah. both of those readings into I think, it. Also, I really I like that it's ambiguous. Of, yeah, I think yeah. either Ooh. of those are, are equally likely. I that's so interesting because well, like think, also like it, it yeah. changes your perception like going into the film because you you learn that like about midway through right like yeah. you get that mm-hmm. information and so you know that's coming up on the point where she could die from being snake bit or she could get out of there and escape and 
it's cool like how that that back lore is reinforced by her own her own story so let's talk about the scene where he gets snake bit i i watched it twice because like the there's a lot of industrial sounds like the the score is is fan fucking tastic in this film and there's a lot of industrial noises um and effects uh going on in the scoring during that scene and they throw him in the back of the truck and the truck takes off and i was like wait a minute is was that a truck muffler or was that a rattlesnake tail interesting and i was like i need to know so i ran it back again and I listened really close. I just like, closed my eyes and just listened to the audio of that scene. Is it both? And not only that, but every industrial overlay and sound in that is snake sounds. Like it's all like the samplings of like snakes hissing or tails rattling or like them sliding over things. Like, And it's all done like to the point where it's not so distorted that you can't hear it. But if you stop and you listen to it, it's like the, the, high, the highs, the lows, the mids, they're all snakes. And it's awesome and like and so like you hear like the the rattling and stuff like when the truck is leaving as well and just it tails off at the end there but it's so so well crafted like i love it well and that brings us to honestly the most horror centric part of the movie watching yeah, for sure. uh augie slowly die of poisoning uh, believe in as he treatment. gets worse and worse well i mean not Thoughts only not only do they not believe in in medical treatment but also if he is if he were to go into town to get help then the cops would come back up we you know we get through some some conversations that the police are constantly harassing their community cuz people keep getting following them yeah follow cuz people keep getting bitten by venomous snakes and dying and shit like that. So we're told that the cops have more than once come into the church and raided it and taken their snakes and stuff like that. That whole part is extremely harrowing. Augie, who is at that point, like, mask off, like, fuck it, I don't believe in this, like, please just get me to a doctor. And his parents being like, no, we can't take you to the doctor. This is God testing you. We just have to pray over you. And it's like, days of him just like lying in bed in agony from snake venom and that scene where they leave and he gets his knife and and tries and cuts open the wound and tries to suck the poison out that's probably the most like yikes that's probably the most like horror horror scene in the movie that was uh great effects yeah i well yeah absolutely like really like deep rich black blood you know like it like it really looks like it's been poisoned and oh man when it's like necrotized like later too well yeah and then they they just decide to cut his arm off and they just do that in their house on the dining room with table. a sawzall yeah with a fucking sawzall like jesus when he walked in with that i was just like no oh no yeah like, and it's just out of like necessity and circumstance because that's like they're just you know they're, like they're they're a poor mountain community like that's that's the tool that they have for the job yeah like and it and it would be oh god yikes that whole sequence is when the movie really really picks up steam it's pretty slow up until then but i think it's a uh, a worthy build to that part because that whole like from when Augie gets bit on is just like so 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 tense Garrett finding out that that Mara's pregnant with Augie's baby and then her dad finding out and the whole confrontation between them uh, is the the rape attempt yeah he tries to rape her in the kitchen of her own house and you know Walton Goggins hears her screaming and comes in and gives Garrett the rightful fucking thrashing that he deserves like I was I was rooting for Walton Goggins to shoot him in that scene when he goes back and gets his gun I was like yeah fuck this dude yeah it was so 
well fucking scripted. shoot him. Um, but I, I really like that scene too because it very much affirms Walton Goggins' humanity. He's not just like a cartoonish cult leader, you know, crazy preacher. Oh, he's really trying to do like, right by his unbelief. He's trying to do right by his family and he loves his daughter and, you know, wants to protect her. But the direction that he's coming from is... Uh, is misguided in many ways, especially after that he takes her to to be quote unquote cleansed to handle a snake, which is another fantastic scene. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, he's not a caricature in that you know there's still room for forgiveness in the religion he believes. It's yes. just he believes it has to be cleansed right. with the snake, which is a really interesting scene. I I really like how they shoot it with so many close ups. Yeah. Um, of the snake and all the quick cuts. Yeah, I would say if you're afraid of snakes, this is probably not the movie for you. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of snake action in this movie. But I, that that scene is very powerful of, of her uh, overcoming her fear of the snake. And you get the impression that it's not through religious devotion, but just through sheer force of will. Because after that, she's like... You know, I've conquered this. I'm going to go take Augie to the hospital. And Walton Goggins is like, if you walk out of here, don't you dare ever come back. And you get a vibe, too, that, like, he regrets the words as he's saying it. Yeah. Like, what, what fucking master class shit is that to deliver a line that way where it really sounds like he, as soon as he says it, he regrets it. And not in, like, a cartoonish manager where his eyes go wide. He stands by what he says, but he knows. He knows he's already yeah. fucked up by, well, by saying Well, I mean, also just, like, the sort of sobbing sigh of relief he gives, you know, when she takes the snake off yeah. and puts it back in the in, – in its in its case. Like, that he was really, really wanting her to come out of this okay, you mm-hmm. know? Like, he was not – putting a snake on her as uh, as as punishment but what he truly thought was a a, a religious test yeah like a cleansing and like honestly i was i was spending so much of this film just like waiting for the moment where there's a basement and there's like some fucked up like wacky ritual or whatever and yeah, i was some real so culty. yeah, yeah some real happens. culty with, with candles happens. and all yeah. thing and i was just so glad with the it direction feels, it went. It feels very real. Mm-hmm. I, yes. I, I agree with Ben that the plot can be a little bit generic, kind of by the numbers, but it at least feels authentic. I mean, the thing is, though, is like it's it's a it's a character study of a very simple people. Those things, you know, happen that can happen that way. And I, for that, I appreciated it. Like, I mean, it's it's about, you know, it's just a character study of them that follow like that word. It's aptly titled. For oh, yeah. God, it works yeah. so well for that. I think it really is elevated by both the incredible acting and I think a lot of the snake bite stuff, honestly. Yeah. I don't have a lot more to say about this movie. I thought it was pretty solidly made. Yeah, I'm fine going ahead and rating if you guys are, sure. unless you have other stuff. Yeah, start I'll, I'll start. Um, I think without the cast it has, would have probably been middle of the road for me. Especially after talking about it, though, it definitely is elevated a little more. I was coming in planning on giving it a three, but I think I'm going to give it a three and a half, just because I think the acting's really strong. I think while the the story itself is a little bit generic, it's really elevated by the uh, the acting and uh, some of the craftsmanship of the film. So yeah, I uh, know I enjoyed this film quite a bit. Uh, it's it's a slow burn. I found myself getting a little bit bored at times, but the climax really pays off, and 
I really liked all of these actors, both the ones that I knew and the ones that I didn't know. Really solid performances across the board. Very interesting subject matter, great atmosphere, beautiful cinematography. I'm going to give it a solid four out of five, I think. Nice. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm largely going to pair with that. You know, as I've said many times before in the podcast, I love a slow burn. I love, I love like just long pauses between scenes with like atmospheric shots and music. It delivered that in spades. I really appreciated just like how little happened at the beginning. Like the film didn't didn't try to like hook you with like you know your standard like marketing tactics or anything else it just let me like live in this society exactly like it let me just get to know the people as people before like any any large stakes uh made themselves apparent god i can't appreciate that enough i think uh the more i talk about it i I was just gonna go for a strong four but fuck it uh four and a half for me i just i really i really like this movie and i'm I'm definitely gonna watch it again at some point all right well that'll be an average of four out of five for them that follow okay so our last film for the evening is the one that i knew by far the least about going into trevor isn't here (laughs) (laughs) so uh curating this uh i i went out of my way to pick a movie that was so bad it's good a very self-serious slow burn and uh, schlocky, stylized, fun horror movie. We had nothing if not variety. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think we accomplished that. I think we did. Yes. uh, So our last film is called Daniel Isn't Real, directed by Adam Egypt Mortimer. What a name. (laughs) Um, What a champion. (laughs) Starring Miles Robbins, Patrick Schwarzenegger, i.e. Arnold Schwarzenegger's son, Sasha Lane, and Mary Stuart Masterson. Uh, or as I will call her, uh, Discount Robin Wright. Uh, Oh, yeah. God, I was thinking the same thing. uh, And it's about a troubled college freshman, Luke, who suffers a violent family trauma and resurrects his charismatic childhood imaginary friend, Daniel, to help him cope, not realizing how dangerous Daniel is. Uh, This was a Shudder exclusive, I can't believe that for this podcast, we still have not invested in a Shutter account, maybe one of these days, but um, I really liked this movie a lot. I had a ton of, I had a blast watching this movie. I thought it was good. I I won't spoil the twist just yet, because we still have some stuff to talk about, but this movie is so good at tricking you into thinking it's something that it's not. Sure, yeah, yeah, I would agree. It wears its influences on its sleeve, For but sure. not in a yeah. bad way. You no, know, I, I think it's very clearly inspired by things like Fight Club with the, the second personality and stuff like Mandy in terms of style. Jacob's Ladder you know? was the one Jacob's that, Ladder, that really hit for me. Big one. Yeah. Uh, Hellraiser also, mm-hmm. um, especially I would say Hellraiser 2. Uh, a lot of stuff pulled from that. A little uh, hereditary in the second half. Yeah, with yeah, yeah, Some yeah. of that stuff. Well, it presents itself as a uh, just sort of like highly stylized modern take on the the Jekyll and Hyde uh, split personality uh, yeah. story. You know, struggle with with mental illness kind of thing. And by the end, it has become something completely different in a way that I did not see coming. 
coming, but also really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I really respect the balls of this movie. I would like to say that I thought the acting was uh, pretty damn good. Yeah, yeah. Especially from uh, the the two leads, Patrick Schwarzenegger and uh, what's the other guy's name? Miles Robbins. Oh, yeah. He plays Luke. He, he stole the show. He was so charismatic. I was, ex- I was, I was very surprised and pleased by his performance, and I definitely want to see him in more stuff. Stuff. I thought Patrick Schwarzenegger as well gave yeah. a, just an excellent performance as Daniel. Oh, he, yeah, he, he rocked it. Yeah, yeah totally. he, he was. Uh, that's what I was saying. Like, I want to see him more. Yeah, that's what I was talking about. Oh, okay. I thought mm-hmm. you were talking about uh, our Miles main Roberts, character. Yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah, he gives it a hundred ten percent at times, and I really appreciate it for that. Uh, one of my other favorite character actor or actresses, uh, Sasha Lane who was in this fantastic movie, American Honey, one of my favorites of the decade, was in it as the uh, the artist-eccentric girlfriend character. I think she did a pretty solid job in this yeah. as well. What else has she been in? Was she uh, in Hellboy? She was in Hellboy. Okay, I thought so. Yeah, minor That's character. where I've yeah. seen her before. Yeah. I couldn't yeah. think of... Yeah, I barely remember anything about that movie. Yeah, she was. Yeah, I thought she did pretty good as well. One of the things that I, I was kind of on the fence about at first, but then really grew to appreciate, is that the dialogue is super corny to... I was the, having a bad time. To the extent of really? yeah. satire. Once I realized that I I think that a lot of it was satirical, I started enjoying it a lot more. I was taking it a little bit more seriously at first, but especially, like, once, like, Daniel has reemerged and we start seeing how he's, like, uh, helping Miles, like... Uh, navigate college and get girls and shit and like you're being introduced to these like super self-serious young yuppie New York type artist types that shit is when I was like okay the reason the dialogue is bad is because it's supposed to be well I mean yeah like look at Sasha Lane's art yes you know it's very taking the piss out of those type of people oh yeah well I mean like and also just accurately portraying and I I think why I thought it was poor at the beginning was because, like, you know, I've, I've been in and out of Brooklyn and that, that whole fucking scene, and they really nailed it to the degree that I thought it was made by people who felt that way about it, and I thought that, like, it was, like, actually just trying to, like, honestly portray it, like, with love, and not necessarily with the degree of, like, sarcasm. And that's why I was just like, oh, this dialogue is awful. Like, they feel like they're being really smart, and they're being framed, like, trying to sound like they're really smart when they're talking about society. But, no, they, they it was, like, the director, they, they were self-aware. But it doesn't come across as self-aware at the beginning to me. So I was, like, not having a good time. And, like, I think at one point, like, I mocked something, like, kind of loudly while we were watching it. And Tease, you just, like, across the room was just like, I I don't know, man. I'm having a good time right now. Like, (laughs) shut the fuck up. (laughs) The part that really really hammered that shit home for me is when uh, Luke meets the, the... the film chick at the party and <laughs> and uh he's like oh, you know yeah. he he says that she looks like some uh, uh oh, the, the, the actress from pandora's box yeah 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 uh some uh starlet of the silver screen and and uh she and he's like oh yeah you must study film and she's like 
I watch films. I study psychology. And that was <laughs> that was the line. Oh, I was laughing. That hard was the at line that. where I was like, where I tipped it over into like, okay, this is satire. There's no way. Well, yeah. I I thought it it portrayed that tone fairly well from the from the jump with how silly some of the st- early stuff as a kid with sure. Daniel were. I was enjoying all of that, with stuff. that stuff. I was enjoying all that stuff, but for that part, I think I was enjoying it for the wrong reason. I was enjoying it in like a so bad it's good kind of way, like shockiness. Yeah. And then later I caught on to the intent and I started to appreciate the craft a lot more. I, yeah. I definitely missed it from the beginning and I uh, I don't think the, it's the film's fault. <laughs> well, I, I think it, it's such a turn with uh, Daniel as a kid when he gets jealous and tells Miles' character. Lucas? Lucas, Lucas, Luke, Luke, yeah. yeah. When he tells Luke to uh, put tons of pills in the blender. To give his mom a superpower. Yeah, which is, yeah which is and fun, his mom's yeah. smoothie. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, well, that's, you know, in the interesting, that's when you see that something is wrong with Daniel. We know at that point he's a imaginary, but that's when there's you know, a really big problem. Uh, no, I thought that was great. Um, and I, then, I think it set the tone for what we were getting into fairly well. Yeah, and sure. on top of that, uh, even before that, the scene right near the beginning of the movie where there's the shooting at the, the coffee oh, shop. I think it's the very first yeah, scene. I think it's the first is, shot. Yeah. Is what a way to start a movie. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's it just knocks you right off your feet yeah. immediately. <laughs> uh, well, when Luke passes the crime scene and we just get that hard cut from his face to like the shooter's you know bullet riddled body on the sidewalk uh and then cut back and daniel is there uh i think that's that's so great is like that is the moment where well at least as we initially think we find out later it's different but at that moment, it's like, well, okay, that's when his mind snapped. Yeah, there's a moment you know, of trauma. So moment he, his, of, his brain develops this character for him to cope with. So it. he, yeah, mm-hmm. so he creates coping an imaginary mechanism. friend yeah. as a coping mechanism, uh, and like then we see that the trauma runs deeper because his imaginary friend, you know, tells him to uh, poison his mother, and then we get the the scene of of her. Uh, you know, telling him to lock Daniel inside the dollhouse. This, his grandmother's dollhouse, this crazy, elaborate, like, big thing. Love that. that yeah. Prop. The dollhouse set and the inside with the strobing. Oh, yeah, with the strobing red lights. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And and then we jump forward in time to Daniel and his, like, at 1920, and we see that his mom is, like, suffering pretty badly from schizophrenia. So then it's like, ah, oh, okay, all right, well, there's some, some mental health issues that run in the family here. Uh, so, you know, the film is going to be about him coping with that. I want to bring up briefly the uh, the the therapist character because he is one of the more I think satirical characters in the movie at just like his sheer overwhelming incompetence. Yeah, like him. He's the one. My he, man straight up tries to cure schizophrenia with a with a peace bowl. Yeah, with a meditation, <laughs> with a Tibetan meditation bowl, a singing bowl. Yeah, I will get back into that scene later because I love that scene. Um, 
Uh, yeah, but yeah. even at the beginning, when Luke is going to him, he's like, yeah, I had this imaginary friend Daniel as a kid, uh, you know, but I, I haven't thought about him in years. And the therapist is like, well, maybe you should try to reconnect with that imaginative side. Like, maybe you should try to reconnect with Daniel. And it's like, who is this guy? <laughs> who who gave this man his credentials? <laughs> Yeah, like, like so, that's such a bad idea. Yeah, I was like, just like, talk to him for a minute longer, like, like, because clearly they hadn't been talking for very long when he gave him that suggestion. Because like, if he'd just like spoken a little bit more about why he was feeling so fucked up, he would have mentioned that Daniel's want to try to convince him to like murder his mom when yeah, he was a like, child. Oh, and it's yeah. like, oh yeah, maybe don't reconnect with the mom murdering side of yourself. Just a thought, or or like, if you do, like, like, do it under supervision in like a safe place, but don't like fucking just go out in the world and like reconnect with your mom murdering side, please. I I thought like there was there was some kind of fun potential too with like the Tibetan singing bowl too because like you know like using that to banish like tulpas and like those like those concepts you know that are like Brain greater demons. than yourself yeah like or you know those those like gods that you invent and uh, I like how that scene was subverted I definitely like yeah that. we'll get into that a bit more because I I have some stuff to say especially about the effects. Oh on that God. scene. But yeah, Daniel is reintroduced after he goes back home, sees his ma- mother has completely relapsed uh, in terms yeah. of schizophrenia. Has to send her, to, she has to be sent back to uh, Covering uh, her walls with random book pages, saying they're giving her messages. Yeah, almost yeah. like a cartoonish level of schizophrenia. Yeah. Like this like large home and there's like all the walls have papers and scribbles and writings on them and you know, it's it's very overdone, but I do appreciate when she has her break later. Uh, that felt extremely genuine and like it really gave me a, a, a start. Like when he looks down the staircase and like there's the shattered glass. And oh, yeah. She's glass. going like, around that, breaking that, that, that all the me. mirrors in, in the house. Well, and that's the first time uh, Daniel reappears as well. So like once again, it's like that that trauma that triggers it. Uh, I thought that scene is great where Daniel, uh, she's got the shard of broken glass in her hand and Luke is trying to wrestle it away from her. Daniel's like, put it to your own throat. And he does and says, either let go of it or kill me. And that's what finally like snaps her out of it. It's like, man, that's really great. Like, I don't know if I would have thought to write something like that. And it's such a good way of letting you know, like right off the bat that like Daniel is a reckless motherfucker. Mm. You know, I mean, he's he's the antithesis of Luke, which is what makes it the whole Jekyll and Hyde thing. He teaches him to be popular and how to talk to women and, you know, stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Like, I think that was one of the reasons I didn't I didn't like the the beginning so much as well is like Luke's character, like drove me up the fucking wall, like with the like super twee, like shoegazy scene where like he has the teddy bear that he's talking to in his room before he goes to bed and shit. And just like the, the haircut and all of it. I was just like, man, this is the last person to want to like be like caught dead or hanging around he's like such an nyu student though i like. know sorry for any nyu students listening but the trauma is too direct for cleveland no thank you like just it's just a little bit too like i mean probably because like i see a lot of like my younger self in that in that character also and like i despise i despise that like i'll I'll be real that's the great thing about daniel as a character is is that he teaches luke 
to exploit that mindset in a very like Tyler Durden kind of yeah uh, in a in a completely like self aware way like you know these people are are you know fools you can you can play them uh, which is I think a a, a great uh, a great point of satire in the film is is just like being able to use people's pretentious bullshit uh, against them to to like fool them I think is is very very fun um but you know it's probably no surprise that uh daniel starts getting extremely sinister very quickly uh starts trying to take over his uh his life and i would like to talk briefly about to segue us into the effects of the movie about the scene where daniel physically takes over for the first time time holy like the the tunnels like under the school or whatever where he and his room tunnels yeah where he and his his roommate take like the film girl and her friend uh you know to do drugs and fuck and and daniel's like here let me let me take over for a minute like you drive yeah you're worried about your lady friend like it's not cheating if it's me right and uh oh my god all of a sudden true body horror just like out of the blue uh really awesome effects were incredible yeah, I like, need to go back and watch it. The perfect blend of CG and practicals. And, like, the really moody, like, neon lighting, like, helps disguise a lot of that, too. But it looked so good. It, this moment of Daniel's face, like, contorting into, like, fleshy tendrils and latching on to Luke's face and then, like, physically changing spaces it's like i had been laughing at a lot of the stuff in the movie up till that point yeah we were both just the, and that when was that happened, and, like oh and that oh jeez like, oh mm-hmm. oh whoa <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's what i like about the the tone of this movie is it's very funny and light but when it hits with the the horror it really hits it hits it very hard you know? yeah. yeah i appreciate that because it's like kind of a throwback to 80s and 90s horror yeah, in that, absolutely. you know, like, it's not too self-serious, but, like, they took a lot of art and artifice into, and craftsmanship into really working on those effects and making yeah. sure they look primo. Well, and they, you know, they, they do some straight up Jacob's Ladder homage where he's at, like, parties and we'll start to see people around him as, like, monstrous demons and shit like that. I thought all of that stuff was done really well, too. Like, it didn't feel like a ripoff of Jacob's Ladder. It felt like a nod in just the right way. Like you said, Ben, they wear their influences on their sleeve, mm-hmm. but it never feels, it never feels like, uh, like a cheap ripoff because there, there's never like a singular influence there's usually like several, several others like stacks, like coming yeah. into play and it they make for a really nice quilt like so yeah i was i was quite happy with the you know it, it, i think it comes to a point where it's not just like wearing influences on its sleeve like its jacket is made of influences yeah but, but they look like a really cool jacket so i don't mind yeah. like it's great since we're talking about uh effects i do want to talk about the effect in the Tibetan bulls. Yeah, let's get into yeah. that. This Yeet. is a good time because most of my thoughts come about the the twist of the film. Yeah, mm-hmm. because there's a scene where the therapist tries to exercise uh, Lucas or Luke's uh, brain demons. Yeah, like it's like some sort of like Rakshasa, like possessing him or something. Like it's like his, yeah. you know, like is another just another like uh, world perspective on having like multiple personality. Yeah, or, trying to take you know. a more Eastern approach, he comes over to Daniel's house. 
else and is like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna hypnotize you with the the Tibetan meditation bowl and then I have this dagger, you know, to to stab the demons or whatever. And it's like at this point in the movie it's like look look at this clown again. Yeah. Like look at this look at this absolutely incompetent loser. Yeah, and it's like also like you're kinda of poo pooing the movie a little bit too. It's like, oh we have to have like a shamanistic character. Yeah, like little, come on. It feels a little bit like Orientalism yeah. uh, in, in kind of a bad way. I mean, but in, it's not like in, it's a, it's a New York yeah. academic like yes. like being an asshole and it's commentary well, on that, that, which is which is why it works. And and the scene subverts it in like maybe the best way. Oh, the best. Because that's the scene when we find out that contrary to the title, Daniel is real and super real. And he's not just a split personality, but a uh, a Lovecraftian uh, void king who is, uh, has spent centuries attaching himself to various people and making them go crazy so he can possess their bodies, so he can be physical, so he can be human. So he can wear cool suits and have a smoke. So he can, yeah, <laughs> so he can have a Spider-Man 3 moment. Yes. Uh, side, note, <laughs> side note on that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the the revelation of that in that scene where he's trying to tell Luke to like cast out his demons or whatever and his mouth starts expanding well uh, yeah. not quite well in momentarily but first Daniel appears yes in, in like in person, like to the yeah, side, just in like a simple to, pan over too. To it's, the it's therapist, classy. yeah, and and like that's that moment where it's like, oh fuck, this is not what we thought it was, and the psychiatrist freaks out as well. And Daniel goes over to Lucas, and because the psychiatrist has put him in a uh, vulnerable, hypnotized state, he's able to fully possess him, and he does so by pulling open his mouth large enough to climb inside. And Which, that effect <laughs> was oh boy. amazing. Wow. Gross, gross, yeah. gross. Yeah, just like wearing him like a flesh suit. Like, and the, sound, like the sound effects like as he's pulling his mouth wider and wider. I thought the practicals that they used for that were really oh my awesome. God. Yeah, just absolutely like, incredible. Yeah, just watching him like like clambering inside of him like yeah yeah it's really 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 gross i like how they built towards daniel being real as well from like the scene before with him going to the prior shooter's uh father's house oh yeah and uh seeing like the art that he drew and it all had it had Daniel's name on it, yeah. and that was the big indicator, as well as these horrifying drawings. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, it it really hinted towards that stuff without making it too clear, mm-hmm. right? You know, and then the next, and then they be. confirm it right away. Yeah. That like, yeah, Daniel uh, passed over to Lucas from the shooter at the beginning when he saw his body, and that's why there was that cut, which I think is such a great subversion because they they build it in such a way that it is just, like, obviously, you know, a, a symptom of trauma, an alter, a split personality from 
trauma and then that there's mental illness in his family and so like all of the signs are there and then to just like pull the rug out from under you and be like nope magic bitch like yeah i think um uh we we talked about this a little bit after the film too and like i was i was a little less like caught off guard by the fact that he was like an external force as opposed to an internal one only because of like i think it was all it was well enough established in like the the thematic undertones it wasn't ever like they never played their hand too hard and it, it's the kind of thing that like what can be was very very it was a very good subversion I'm, i am i am trying to like pay credit to it but like with like the the opening shot being like this like astral vortex you know this like this very yeah. like like astral grand entity of well, yeah. space like that had me wondering like okay where's the grand element gonna come into play and so you see the stuff with Daniel. it's like okay is he like something external you know is he is he invading him and so like when that comes to fruition it's good because that means it was well established like and i i appreciated that about it like because like so many films like they just try too hard to subvert and it's not just about that and this this we'll see the the interesting thing is that like i read the the couple of shots of like the vortex as like metaphorical as to be like representing internal sunshine yeah. yeah as as representing like the internal turmoil of the the protagonist luke's vortex Right, Luke's vortex. Yeah, you know, sure. I I read that as metaphorical, and you read it as more literal, and it keyed you into the actual twist. Whereas I was much more taken aback by the twist because I had not been looking at it so literally. Yeah. And like, I, I think honestly, like your perspective is the more valid one too. Well, I mean, because I of like the way the film is setting up, like art and how we're looking I at it and nice stuff, and it's the it kind pres- of thing that that movie would do. I think it's nice that it presents it in such a way that you can either look at it literally and be validated by it later or you can look at it metaphorically and be surprised by it yes you know like they're they're both mm-hmm. they're both equally satisfying i think but it yeah. just depends on on how ben what about you because you, didn't, you I, didn't watch I, it with us i saw it more of an aesthetic choice and yeah. more of a, a metaphor if anything okay um you know the the film emphasized how stylistic it was right. yeah so I, I saw it more of a, a throwback style choice you know especially with the title card coming mm-hmm. in with it rotating into the well, name and like yeah and that shot too looked like a rotating matte painting as yeah, well i it don't looks, think it, it was really digital it, it really well felt i think like i a, think it was like a matte painting and it had digital effects on it like Probably, like there's like thunder yeah. in the clouds and stuff if i remember like there is motion like sure but it, it looked but it looked distinctly like something from the 80s when you looked at it it looked yes. like something the, the kind of effects that you would see in something like the dark crystal oh, what it reminded me of was the intro to in the 70s invasion of the body snatchers yeah the see, palette was very similar. See, what was on my mind during it, and this was just recency biases, I'd seen uh, Uncut Gems just a couple days prior with the the gem oh, intro, yeah. oh, yeah. the psychedelic sequence, so and it reminded me a lot of that. Yeah. You know, and I'd connected the dots in terms of aesthetics there and took it much less literally because of it. I Sidebar on that, great fucking movie. Fucking phenomenal movie, Uncut Gems. Back to the 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 plot, um after after this, uh Daniel locks uh Luke in the same like 
mind palace that he was locked in earlier, which I thought was very cool. Not only was it just like a dope setting and a great opportunity to show off some more like surreal shit, but also like the fact that there were like the, the, the mutated spirits of like the other people that he had possessed, like running around the mind palace. Very fucking cool. Yeah. All Jacob's laddery and shit. But I love like the, the, the flesh, like mutated, like, like in spikes off their faces. Yeah. Yeah. It looked good. I will say the one main monster in that area, it looked a little plasticky. Oh, I kind of like that about it. It did look plasticky. I I agree, but I I thought that... I thought it looked a little cheap, uh, only compared to the rest of the Mm -hmm. effects in the movie. Honestly, it was one of my favorite because of that, only because, like, that sequence is in a mind palace. Like, it's in, like, a very, like, it's in an artificial setting, so, like, Mm -hmm. its own artifice... It, mm-hmm. the theme it, it didn't bother me too much uh but i i agree it it looked a little bit more artificial like once uh luke had incapacitated him and it was revealed that that monster was the the shooter from the beginning and they sort of have their little conversation before uh luke leaves i think that that is where where you have more time to just sit with it and there's less movement that the effect does look a little more plasticky it didn't bother me too much, but I see what you're. No. I see where you're coming I, from. I, I think the design of it is very clever. You know, I think I I really like how they introduce some of that with uh, Sasha Lane's character uses Lucas as kind of a muse during the movie, and yeah. uh, she paints a portrait of him. <laughs> and in the background, there's uh, the shadow, the shadow, yeah. and that's what she says she envisions his inner self to be. But he sees it very literal. As Daniel, as Daniel, and yeah. later on when we see the creature, that the same Daniel you know, takes the same silhouette. Yeah, horns is what we see as as the monster. Yeah, you know, I, I really liked that as well. Uh, I like when Luke escapes from the Mind Palace when he's uh, after he's confronted the other monster, and he's like breaking through the wall, and he's like what's through here? And the guy's just like, the abyss. <laughs> it's like straight up. <laughs> oh my God. Um, we are past metaphors at this point, ladies uh, and gentlemen. Yeah. Like <laughs> super literal Lovecraftian nonsense, uh, that I love so much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's my kind of nonsense. Quick, quick dip back to now that we've revealed Let's take a quick that, dip. uh, that, uh, the scene where Daniel newly in Luke's body, uh, goes on a shopping spree to get himself like a nice suit. Uh, a Spider-Man three shopping spree. Yes, <laughs> super Spider-Man three vibes. Uh, I loved it though. I loved it as because well. his, Same. He, he was at a he was like at Nick Cage levels of you know yeah. giving it a hundred ten percent and I, just pushing it way over the top. I think he did a better job than Spider-Man three. Oh like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like easily. Well, like, that's that's why that's another reason why I want to give kudos to Miles Robbins because at that point, like it's Daniel, but it's Miles Robbins playing him because he's in his body, and to see the switch from him to go from Luke to Daniel, where he gets to really ham it up, like super over the top, 
is he does the, a great job. He does, you you he buy a, it. Yeah. You definitely buy it. He does a good job, and just like him standing outside the shop, like like really relishing smoking that a cigarette. Um, I I loved that. I know I know when we were first talking about after the movie Cleve, you said that you had a bit of a problem that like this uh, supreme astral being scope was a little bit limited. The more I've had, the more time I've had to think on it. The, the and after just speaking with you about it, the the more I've I've come around yeah, to love it. Because like, I I actually really hard like, right turn. I I actually really like that it's not like, uh, you know, world destruction or like universal domination is that like he just wants to be human. He just wants to be able to experience physical reality. And they set that up really nicely before, like during the montage of Daniel, like teaching him stuff and like doing things when they're at like the the docks or whatever. And like Daniel's waiting in the water and Luke says, how's the water? And he's like... I don't know. And I think that that's, that's like a really nice setup for like, yeah, he doesn't have any grander plans. He just wants to be, he fit. wants he to just, be human and cause chaos. There's a girl. Just an agent of chaos. Yeah. Um, really, really love that. And I think that the perfect way to end, culminate the whole thing is with their sword fight on the roof. Yeah. Like when they were kids. Great callback mm-hmm. to, yeah, them playing with the brooms as kids, sword fighting, and then they manifest actual swords through the power of imagination. Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> delightfully campy in a way that works for this yeah. movie really well. Uh very uh in that that scene felt very shades of uh Scott Pilgrim but like toned down a little bit yeah. but still feels like it fits within the universe. It's the kind of thing that might have frustrated me in another movie but for this felt like a really great really great way to do it especially to you know have these two kind of over the top characters pair off and fight with fucking swords. It was a lot of fun. I thought it was a ton of fun. And I, I thought that Climax was uh, done in a very satisfying way, especially with how yeah. they wrap it up. It's not necessarily a happy ending. Well, no, I would say I'd say that it's it's a it's quite a, a, a rather pessimistic ending because, um, I mean, Luke dies. He sacrifices himself to kill Daniel. But then, surprise, the the cosmic nightmare monster isn't killed by falling off of a roof, you know? You know, still alive at the end, still out here. It was satisfying. It was satisfying. I think it's a little bit pessimistic, but it felt it felt right for the movie. You know, at least that... I think that's all that Luke could do. Yeah. He felt redeemed. It felt like a, like a worthy ending to his arc, and that even though Daniel's still alive... You still take the small victory where you can, I guess. Uh, Time to rate? Yeah, I think so. I'll start, I guess. Go for it. Uh, I had a blast watching this movie. I thought the effects were great. I thought the style was really great. I thought the acting was super fun. Overall, I have very few bad things to say. I will say this movie verges on being not very woke in terms of its portrayal of schizophrenia at times. Uh, I think the only the only like big saving grace is that it isn't schizophrenia. Well, and also its saving grace is its tone. If, yeah. it's not yeah. very self serious. I think it's. I think which, it's far. Yeah. I think it, I will say. Uh, I think that it does a far better job than the fanatic mental health and the fanatic yeah. does. Or, yeah, or even glass. Like I, I, I think the the tone of this film was a lot like more yeah. Yeah, appro- approachable. Um, than... I think I think the the script of this movie was really clever and how it did that stuff and. In general, I think it 
it introduced a lot of things that it wrapped up super well and super creatively yeah. throughout the film. It's a strong four out of five for me. It's really one to go check out. It's it's worth watching. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, I really enjoyed this movie. It had all of the right references and homages to things that I liked uh, without feeling cheap. Uh, acting was solid, effects work, incredible, uh, very original story, a seemingly predictable uh, narrative that takes a very unpredictable turn in a, a super satisfying way. I'm going to give it a strong four as well. Um, yeah, I really, the, the only thing that's keeping it from being like a five from me is the, uh, the first act. I was just, uh, like, I, I get, I get what they were trying to do now. <laughs> uh, at the time, uh, I just, because it's just, there was a lot of like watching people be pr- pretentious yeah, not, not very academic, like was, was, was just a, a kind of, a, <laughs> I know it was supposed to be obnoxious, but I just was kind of bored and, and obno- felt obnoxious by it. Um, but man, when, when the film fucking takes off, it flies. Uh, so no, a strong four from me as well. Like the beginning sequences would be a lot more tolerable for me on a second watch, which I would, I would gladly watch a second time. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, yeah. well that's a unanimous four out of five for Daniel isn't real. What, uh, I mean, I think our ratings probably speak to this, but what was y'all's favorite of the three? Mine is Daniel isn't real. Mine is um, also Daniel isn't real. I, I, Liked elements of all three of them, though. I'm very happy with this then the curation follow-up. for you, for me. Yeah, I just which is which is funny because I I do think that like Daniel isn't real is more me. Like if I had to choose, like what what kind of film like is is more like Cleveland? Then I would say, well, yeah, it's got the void. It's very colorful and wacky, and you know, like it it doesn't keep its cards too close to its chest. It has fun. Like it's very stylized, and again, like big astral shot at the beginning. Everything I love. But God, I just them that follow. I don't know. Just the just what a a genuine character study. I I, I just really fucking appreciated it. And it just you just I don't know. I, I, it's just so hard to come across like slow burn films like that now. And I I, I just I can't I can't really say how uh, enough like how much I appreciated. It's a marginal that. difference for me. I rated Daniel and them that follow the same, but I would put I would put Daniel isn't real slightly above. They both very valid um, answers. Probably probably the same answers, but an extension of that question is what which of the three would you recommend to general audiences the Daniel the, the most Daniel Daniel, Daniel I think yeah. so yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think that if if you if you see one of these movies if you only, if you can only see one I would say Daniel isn't real yeah. is the and you're just a regular street walker pleb yeah go go see Daniel <laughs> you know but if you're if you're if you're a, a, a an academic you know if you really if you can really appreciate the the, the finer things than go watch them that follow because I'm better than you. <laughs> Is them um, that follow uh, the pleb filter? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, God, no, Abs- absolutely not. Like what you fucking like. I don't give a shit. Um, uh, and uh, they're they're both equally valid. Well, yeah, this was a a solid curation. I I 
enjoyed things about all of these movies. Yeah, like, once again, great fucking um, picks, man. Yeah. Good well, job, when uh, halfway through the year comes along and I'm winning, I'll pick three good ones again. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> God damn we'll it. We'll see. Uh, well, that will... Very heel of you to say. <laughs> that will once and for all lay 2019 to rest as much as we would love to live in those bygotten yesterdays of 2019 it's time for us to look forward and forward we will and we have forward. a bunch of new movies in the next month yes we do uh, movies that i'm actually kind of excited for several you know? that i'm quite excited for yeah. uh our next uh next week's episode will be on the new grudge film uh which i wish i could say i was more excited for i've a lot of the preliminary reviews have come in. I haven't been paying attention. I won't say. I won't say anything. Reviews. I will say that. Uh, <laughs> I won't say anything. But I'm going to say as, this. <laughs> as far as I know, none of us have seen either the original Japanese film or the American remake. I have not. No. Nope. So this is all of our first. Wait. Whoa. Experience. Yeah. So you guys haven't seen. Oh, uh-uh. awesome. Okay, so cool. this is <laughs> for once. I'm not the only one under the rock. No, this is yes. going to be this is going to be our first exposure to the Grudge franchise in general. So uh, tune back in next week to hear how that goes. Uh, I will say it is fuck you. It's January, so <laughs> I, every movie I watch this this month, I will be going into that. The no, healthy dose of skepticism. I mean, I mean that trailer show sure does show a lot. Well, yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll get more into that next week. But uh, yeah, that should bring us to the end of this week's episode. Uh, this episode sponsored by uh, Granny uh, 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 Dance Danzen's uh, Spooky Mansions. You got a problem? You throw it in that dollhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> There you go. Stuff it down with brown. That's there you go. <laughs> Granny, whatever the fuck I said, that's our sponsor. There you go. All right. Well, that'll bring us to the end of this week's episode. It and was a long one. The end of the decade. And the end of the decade, and only looking forward from now on. Uh, Pod Boys in 2020 join our legions. For we are numbers. You have, you look like you have something you want to say. Oh no, I just saw a cute meme on my phone. Okay, all right, we'll, We're good. we'll address that. Um, <laughs> well, if you're still with us in this new year, in this new decade, then uh, consider going on to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five star re- uh, rating and nice review, or wherever else you get your podcasts, and you can do that. Do do it. <laughs> <laughs> You can follow us on Twitter at PodPeoplePod for uh, occasional updates into things and stuff. Wait, I'm sorry. I missed that. What, what is that? PodPicklePod? PodPicklePod on Twitter. Cool. Um, you can also follow us on Letterboxd at uh, PodPeoplePod for the list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to those episodes. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DeepStateOzzy. Uh, I'm at Mr. Sheets on and Twitter. And occasionally I'm on Twizzle, twizzling about uh, with Light Arc Studio. Uh, it stares back. Yep. Uh, buy the game. It's on Steam. $6 in early access. Get it. 
Giri. I guess a slight plug off of my Twitter. Uh, if you want to see other lists that I have put together for the end of the year, the end of the decade, I posted all that shit on Twitter. I've got a top 50 films of the decade, top 100 albums of the decade. Uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing, yeah. uh, Deep State Ozzy. I'm on Letterboxd at Mr. Sheets if you want to see my list of the best movies of the year and the decade as well. I'm a pleb streetwalker, so I don't have one of those, but you can always check out my work on ArtStation. Just uh, type in old Cleveland Mosier, and uh, yeah, you see all those cool arts. Type in Cleveland Mosier, not old Cleveland Mosier. <laughs> I mean, <while> <laughs> try it, see what happens. While it's I, I an accurate know. descriptor, I don't know if it'll get you to the right link. Old Cleveland Mosier. All right, well, 2020, we're here for you. Hopefully, you won't take us down with you. Oh, All God. right. Tally-ho, boys. Choo-choo.